Well, it's finally here. I uh, did part two of this session two and a half years ago, and that's pretty much all I've let myself read in the last two and a half years is information related to the last 200 years of history. Now, this is church history. Now, how can you tell the difference between secular history and church history? I don't know if you can. Jesus said that not a sparrow falls to the ground, except his father notices. So if God cares about the death of every sparrow, do you think maybe he cares about the rise and falling of nations? I, I really believe he does. Uh, if you look at the Old Testament, God had prophecies. He was aware of what was going on in Egypt and Assyria and all of those other nations. God cared about what was going on. Revelation said that Jesus is the king. He rules the nations with a rod of iron. It says in Ephesians, or Colossians, <laughs> he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So when we look at history, things that really happened, we're talking about his story. So I don't think there is such a thing as secular history. So because of that, we are going to be looking at a lot of world events. You may wonder, that doesn't fall under church history. Well, I think it does, especially when you, it says in Ephesians that Jesus Christ loves and nourishes and cherishes his church. So any event that happens down here affects his body. So God cares about what the church goes through. A husband cares, no matter what event a wife goes through, the husband cares about it because his wife is going through it. And in the same way, no matter what event is happening in the world, God cares about it because his body is experiencing it. Tonight we're looking at church history and my goal is to try to make it to World War I, but we'll see how far we'll get. I don't know if I was a typical Canadian, but two years ago my understanding of Canadian history was absolutely abysmal. But as I got into it, I found it to be incredibly fascinating and rewarding, and I'm really hoping that after an hour of me lecturing on Canadian history, you find it interesting and that I never, <laughs> I don't scare you away from ever reading another Canadian history textbook, because this is fascinating stuff. The land we call Canada today was probably first inhabited, inhabited by Asians who crossed the Bering Strait between Russia. Mostly hunter-gatherers, didn't really establish any firm societies or trades. Uh, closer towards the east coast, they did establish some more complex societies. I have to be very careful, my grandpa has his PhD in linguistics and he teaches Blackfoot and Cree and he's very familiar with Native American culture so I will try not to look at him whenever I'm talking about the natives. And he's got a bow and arrow. <laughs> <laughs> the first European to come to this part of Canada was Giovanni Cabato or John Cabot who was an Italian. Big shocker there. He found financial backing from England, and he discovered land and being very original and creative, called it Newfound Land. This was in 1497. Now in around 1530, the French started exploring this area. Jacques Cartier came, started sailing up the St. Lawrence River. If there is a map of Canada at the back of your syllabus, so if you want some spatial understanding of what I'm talking about. 
Uh, Jacques Cartier discovered the Iroquois Indians, became friends with them. He asked them what the land north of the St. River, St. Lawrence River was called, and they said it's Canata, K-A-N-A-T-A, which means row of houses. So the French started calling the whole area Canada, which became Canada. Uh, Jacques Cartier took the chief's sons back to France. Then on a second trip, he needed some incentive for financing because these missions, these uh, ex exploration voyages were very costly and the nations wanted to know that they'd get something back. So on Jacques Cartier's second trip, he kidnapped the Iroquois chief, took him back home, and this chief's job was to sell the French government that this is an amazing place. Now this chief was very motivated to do this because he wanted to come home. So he said that Canada was a land full of gold, it was a kingdom, there was lots of spices and oranges. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, this chief died of scurvy before he was able to make it back to Canada. So when Cartier came back to Canada, the Huron, uh, Iroquois were not very friendly. Samuel Champlain, the Champlain, I, I've, I've got good redneck French, so please bear with me for <laughs> pronunciations, but Samuel de Champlain, around six, the beginning of the 1600s, wanted to establish a colony in the area they started calling New France for the glory of God. Now, the majority of the settlers in New France, which is Quebec, Montreal, both sides of the St. Lawrence, and uh, what is now Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, that whole area, were mostly French. Those were the original first settlers. French had a system, I think it's pronounced seigneurial system. They would take land from the river, divide it in big swaths, and a wealthy person would buy this swath of land. He would provide a mill, a church, and then people would come and be kind of tenant farmers. So on the one hand, it made sure that no matter how poor you were, there was a place for you to live. But it was also kind of a stifling economy because it wasn't a free trade private property system either. But that was mainly what the French had. Now the French, the area of Acadia, which is Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, became quite successful. They figured out how to drain some of the marshes. And so this was, they were quite a successful settlement, but in the Treaty of 1712, remember these Acadians who lived in this area in Acadia were French, but France lost control of the land and signed it over to England in a treaty of Urecht, I think is how it's pronounced. And the English came, told the Acadians, you have two choices, you can leave this area or swear allegiance to England. And that's something very difficult for a French person to do, to swear allegiance to England. But English, at this point, weren't really in a position to enforce this, so they just continued farming in their merry way. About 30 years later, England said, we really got to get these Acadians to swear allegiance. And the diplomat said, look, how about you swear allegiance, but we'll also include that you don't have to bear arms or take up guns to defend. So that was okay. If they, were, they could defend as long as they didn't have to kill anybody, which was, didn't do much. 
Now, in the 1755, there was war brewing again between France and England. It didn't go very long between wars between France and England all the way back. But another war was brewing, and England thought this group of Acadian farmers, we really need to insist that they swear allegiance. They refused again, and so this time the English deported about 8,000 of the 10,000 Acadians there. A third died on ships on the way, a third made it back to France, and another third went down to Louisiana, where it became, there was another French community, and Acadia was slurred to Cajun, and that's where we get Cajun chicken and Cajun music and the French culture there. Now, Hudson Bay, are you very familiar? That's Hudson, Henry Hudson was an explorer, I think 1600s explored what is now Hudson Bay. It wasn't Hudson Bay back then, but he explored it. He wanted to spend the winter, his men didn't want to, so Henry Hudson was put in a ship with a, on a boat with his son and just set to sail and nobody knows what happens to him except most people are pretty sure he died. But he's, they don't know what happened to him beyond that. So this is, England has started to gather Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and PEI in Newfoundland. And, but the France owns, I think about 65,000 people had, were living in New France, which was Quebec and Montreal. And this brings us to the Seven Years War or what's called in North America, the French Indian War. How many of you have heard of the Battle of the Plains of Abraham? So the Plains of Abraham are just outside the fortress of Quebec. And in the summer of, this is all in the timeline of Canadian history. But I think this was, yeah, 1759. James Wolfe, who was the English general, he sieged Quebec all summer long. And near the end of the summer, he was eager to get back. He was engaged. He had only got to spend a week with his fiancée. He wanted to just wrap up this battle. And so in a pretty much last, in the fall, desperation, he stormed up the plains of Abraham. Montcalm, who was the French general, was also eager to get home. He's, his wife and family were there. He had just heard that one of his daughters died, had died, but the message didn't say. He made the mistake of leaving his fortress and meeting them on the plains. And it was a very bloody battle. Thankfully, there was a bunch of Highland Scots mercenaries who were fighting in this battle for England. English loved it when you could hire Scots to fight with you. One, they were Scottish, so they were fierce and terrifying and played terrible music with their bagpipes. <laughs> and the second reason, and best of all, because they were Scottish, it didn't hurt when they died. So the Eng they were the perfect soldier for English. England won the battle on the Plains of Abraham, took control of Quebec, but both Wolfe and Montcalm died in battle. Uh, they spent the winter there with tattered troops, and it was basically the first, whether France or England sent new supplies, would gain control of the area. England won the race, reinforced it, took sealed the area for England. Then in 1763, the war ended, the Treaty of Paris was signed, and France lost control of all their land in North America. 
they lost the Louisiana territory, which was it's, it's pretty much a big swath right down the middle of America. They lost that to the Spanish. And they sold the rest of their land holdings to England. But still, the majority of the people actually living in New France were French, Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic customs, French customs, and not real excited about English law coming in. So for about 10 years, England tried to impose their will. Some English merchants came into Montreal and England, I mean, in Quebec. But the, the, it just was a very frayed society. The, the, it was too predominantly French. So in 1774, Britain passed the Quebec Act, which allowed the French people to maintain their French, their Roman Catholic religion and their French landowning customs and their civil law. They just weren't allowed to hold some kind of office, but the, the French were great. Now, the US, it wasn't the US yet, but the British North America colonies in 1774 were really angered. This is George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson people, if you haven't, aren't keeping up, were very angered by the Quebec Act. They thought it was deplorable that they would give Roman Catholic, Roman Catholicism that kind of freedom in the new world. They were, America was very against any form of tyranny and they saw the Roman Catholic religion that was dictated by a series of increasing hierarchy all the way to the Pope as very oppressive. So this was one of their deplorable acts that they mentioned in their complaint. One of their other big complaints was that Britain was taxing the colonies because someone had to pay for all the mercenaries and the soldiers that Britain had put in this new world. They didn't want like this idea. Apparently most historians think that Britain's demands for money weren't that bad. But anyway, they said, no tyranny, the end of tyranny, don't tread on me. And one of the first areas that the American colonies attacked was Montreal. And they marched into Montreal and Montreal fell quite rapidly and the French in Montreal hailed them as conquering heroes. Now the plan was that the colonists would march and take Montreal and then they would swing over, another general would be on his way and they would take Quebec. Now unfortunately, Benedict Arnold, who you've heard of, um, was originally on the American colonist side as a rebel. But he, on his way to take Quebec, used a very old map that was inaccurate so the trip took a lot longer than he planned. And by the time he actually made it to Quebec, his men were starving and ragged and cold because it ended up later in the year. So it, the battle didn't go very well in Quebec and eventually the Britain re-established their control of Montreal and came back. So the colonists thought though that if they could just control Canada, they would win the war. That was their original reason for marching into Canada. Britain signed the Treaty of Paris, which gave the American colonies their independence. But during this time, the about 100,000 loyalists 
fled from the American now states into Canada because they wanted to remain loyal to the crown and they were against the idea of anarchy and taking arms. They took the verses in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 about submitting to authority very seriously and they just could not, didn't think it was justified to fight against. This loyalist mindset continues to shape or continued to shape Canadian history and provide quite a stark contrast between the brand of Americanism, uh, American religion that took off in the United States. The colony's slogans were life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. They had a creed, no creed but the Bible. They were against all forms of tyranny, which was any form of authority. In Canada, for example, a, a much different style of religion came on. The Anglican Church, which is apparently very sound in its 39 articles, its good Puritan theology, became very powerful throughout Canada, and through much of its history, basically until the United Church was founded in 1929 when the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Anglicans joined in the United Church. Anyway, we will get back to more of the ideas that fermented and led to revivalism and different cults even and peripherally, never mind that word, of <laughs> denominations, proliferation of denominations down in the States. But all these Englishmen fleeing to Canada created a cultural conflict because before Canada had been mainly French. Now you have 100,000 English immigrants living on English soil. There's going to be butting heads. The English want English laws. The French don't want the English anywhere to do it. So they complained to Britain, said, come help us resolve this. We're butting heads with the French. So the British came, looked at it and said, the problem we have here is we've got to figure out, a, get a way to let the, kind of assimilate the French into this. They at first set up, now this is one of the most confusing aspects of Canadian history, so please bear with me. They, look, let's go, to, let's go look at this map of Canada. You see up here on the area of Quebec, this whole upper area, they said, let's call that Lower Canada. And that was predominantly the French area, Roman Catholic area. And then you see this whole area down here that is now Ottawa, Toronto. They said, let's call that Upper Canada. <laughs> it really would have been helpful to look at a map before naming these. <laughs> places. So just remember, if I get this straight for the next little while, when I say Upper Canada, I actually mean Lower Canada. And when I say Lower Canada, I actually mean Upper Canada. But in 1791, the Constitution Act divided these up into the two Canadas. Uh, I should give you just a little bit of history. I won't have much time to get into it, but it's so fascinating. There was a series of explorers based on the fur trade 
Around the end of the 1500s, the beaver hat became incredibly popular. And now it ranks right up there with bell bottoms and poofy hair, but the beaver hat was incredibly popular in Europe. And there was a ton of beavers in Canada. Now, this was originally what brought the traders, not like Benedict Arnold kind, but like the traders <laughs> to America, to Canada, was to acquire furs from the Indians. Originally, people said that the whole history of the fur trade was just Europeans exploiting Native Americans. But the Native Americans were very skilled traders, and the things that Europeans were bringing from the old world, um, guns and blankets and pots, steels, they had not developed any of the art of shaping metal, so these were really valuable commodities. They were happy to give up animals for valuable things like guns. Now, in 1793, Alexander Mackenzie made it all the way to saltwater on British Columbia. He published a book about it, Thomas, and Thomas Jefferson read it, and he was fascinated in that right in 1704, uh, 1804, he sent off Lewis and Clark to explore his newly acquired, the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, I should just jump over to Europe for a second because r shortly after the American Revolution, the French said, France said, that looks like a really great idea. Let's try this revolution thing over here. Spoiler alert, it wasn't near as successful in France as it was in the United States. The United States since that time has had one constitution, one government. France has had nine different governments and, for example, between World War I and 1902, they had 40 different prime ministers, which was only about 20 years. They've had, I think they're on their fifth republic, and they've had three empires and one other form of government. It was a brutal reign of terror. The French Revolution was based on atheistic principles. In fact, anything that had to do with God, uh, Robespierre, got rid of, including the seven-day week, because that was based on Genesis. So he tried to institute a 10-day week with one day off, which didn't last. He tried to give the French a new religion that was based on the goddess of reason and not what the French had. It ended up actually being very healthy for the church, though, because the church had become so intertwined with politics that it was basically just a, a dead thing, and it really became in touch with, with its job of being filled with the spirit and communicating the word, not just worldly power. Napo How many of you people have here heard of Napoleon? <laughs> Very good. So Napoleon was part of this French revolutionary army, and he started, uh, there's a map of Europe here, started conquering parts of Europe. He, he came back, he overthrew the first French Republic, I think it was, and set up, proclaimed himself emperor. Napoleon acquired the Louisiana area from, back from Spain. He tried to put down an uprising of slaves in Haiti and realized he was so busy with European wars that he didn't have 
the manpower to police anything in the New World. So he said, I'm just going to try to get whatever I can before the United States just marches right into Louisiana and takes it. So he sold that whole Louisiana area, which actually includes just part of our place. It's, Louisiana was defined as any area that runs into the Mississippi. And so the water, for example, on our property just runs into the Milk River, and then the Milk River runs into the Missouri, which runs into the Mississippi and the Missouri. Anyway, it's whatever runs into the Missouri. So that's what defined the Louisiana Purchase. It worked out to about three cents an acre. Uh, around this time, Napoleon tried to invade Britain by sea, which is pretty much how he was forced to do it because airplanes weren't invented yet. But the fact that he was forced to use the sea method worked out really well for Britain because Britain was really good at the whole sailing thing. And they, the Battle of, I think it's pronounced Trafalgar, and Admiral Horatio Nelson died but became a mythical hero in defeating and winning that battle. Napoleon conquered most of Europe, would put a relative, a nephew, uncle, didn't matter, on the throne. But in 1812, Napoleon decided to try to conquer Russia. So he assembled a grand army of 600,000 men. Yeah, Chloe's shaking her head. This is never a good idea to try to invade <laughs> Russia. But he tried to <laughs> in, invade Russia, and he made it as far as Moscow, and then the major rationality in these things, the winter, hit. And Napoleon and his summer outfits that were forced to, <laughs> to try to march back, and on the way, Russia slaughtered 500,000 of Napoleon's men on the way back, which was a little bit hard for him to swallow. Europe got together and formed a coalition and defeated Napoleon in 1814, had him sent to Elba, which is, I think, somewhere around the Mediterranean. Then they decided, well, what do we do with Europe? Because Napoleon's kind of messed it all up with France, French Empire written all over the place. So they were deciding what to do, and while they were deciding what to do, Napoleon escaped, raised another army, and Wellington, the British general, defeated Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815. Napoleon was sent to uh, the little island of St. Helen, which is over by South America, and he lived there for another six years. Europe had the Congress of Vienna, where they had a representative from the major powers, which were Britain, France, Austria, and Russia. And they redrew the lines of Europe based on balance. They thought that was the most important aspect of keeping the peace. It didn't work. Martin Luther's idea of the priesthood of all believers had worked its way into a, a political idea that every person had certain rights and that they needed to be heard. And the way the common person's voice was heard was through free elections where you could elect someone to represent you to speak for you in national matters. Up until the 1700s, that was a radical idea that really hadn't been tried Rome and Greece applied some of those ideas, but mostly it was, it was dictators and kings and police states. And unless you were a knight or a, a feudal lord, you didn't have much say. 
but these ideas coming out of the Reformation started sparking revolutions in America, in France. Uh, France tried several revolutions. One person said whenever France sneezes, Europe catches a cold because it was the revolution in France would spill over. Belgium, for example, won their independence around 1830 from the Netherlands under the agreement that they would stay neutral. Sarnia, the Kingdom of Sarnia became the United Kingdom of Italy. Austria, Hungary became Austria-Hungary. And Otto von Bismarck played a very large role in reunifying the different Prussian states into the unified emperor of the unified empire of Germany. And in the Franco-Prussian wars, we're down over about 1870 now, William I was declared Kaiser William I, and that was the Second Reich, or German Empire. The first empire had been the Holy Roman Empire, and Hitler, when he established, was the Third Reich. But so that's just way too much European history packed into just a few minutes. But the idea here is that this idea of of liberalism, revolution, let's fight for our rights, let's overthrow tyranny and dictators, was a very common idea that kept having different empires were overthrown. But then, if this liberty isn't based on something firm, the people fighting for liberty become fractured. Now, what kept the United States Revolution together is they were unified on godly principles so that it wasn't like in France every man for himself it was every man under God in the United States and the fact that every man didn't see himself as God or the ultimate authority it provided a cohesiveness that enabled I'm really simplifying <laughs> these ideas but that's that's basically what was happening um, but back to these English explorers, Sir Alexander Mackenzie made it to Saltwater in 1793. And just a couple of really interesting, fascinating people. Samuel Hearns in 1700s went with Indians. Uh, let's go back to that map of Canada. You can see it. You see that area right above none of it. He went with Indians all the way up there. His Indian chief said that the reason our first expedition failed is we didn't have enough women with us. He said, women can do the work of two men. <laughs> Which either makes him a feminist hero or a chauvinist pig, depending on how you <laughs> interpret that. These copper Indians were fascinated by his white skin. They very eloquently described it as meat that had soaked in water for days until all the blood had run out. <laughs> Samuel Hearn, when he came back, he made a habit of pet beavers, minks, otters. They would, they love plum pudding and they would respond to their name. David Thompson was another young man from England. Hudson Bay Company hired him at 14, brought him to the New World. He started out with menial jobs, but he finally got to explore. And at the age of 17, he made it to the foot of the Rocky Mountains, where he got to spend a winter with the Pagan Indians. This was, I think, 1787, around there. 
Uh, just fascinating the stories as he got to hear the language. He heard about the first time the Native Americans encountered a tribe that had horses. They didn't understand what this giant hornless stag was. And they also told about a time they attacked another Indian village and surprised them and found them all sleeping in their tent, but they weren't sleeping, they had died of smallpox. So they celebrated this victory by taking the loot back to their area, which wiped, decimated them. They said they had no idea that it was, I have the idea of contagious. They said one man can't give a wound to another man. Uh, just very sad, another example of how old world diseases decimated the new world. I've got to speed things up a little bit here. Uh, so we have people growing, immigrants coming from England. We have, by about 17, by 1837 now, we have Upper Canada, which is down here, and Lower Canada, which is up here. Just, this has been such a head trip, trying to sort that out. Back in 1791, the British Constitution that was put in place for Lower Canada and Upper Canada had called for a lower house, which was an elected assembly, but it called for an upper house, which was a legislative body that was appointed. So the legislative executive body was appointed, it was not elected. The British governor or representative would appoint people and it was, became corrupt because if you had money you could buy this position. And so because of this, whenever the lower body voted on something, the upper body just basically ignored it. So these low, this lower body was getting very frustrated that they had no say in, in the political issues of where to spend the money, what to do with the laws, issues that governments deal with. So in Upper Canada, which is the Ontario area in English, William Lyon Mackenzie was running a printing press calling the wealthy British horrible names. He was trying to stir up an American-style revolution where they could overthrow the government. Now in Lower Canada, which was Roman Catholic and French, Joseph Papineau was stirring up a group, the Le Patriots, also trying to overthrow the government, just saying we're under tyranny. The threat that the French were providing seemed like a greater threat, so England took all of their soldiers out of Upper, Ontario, upper Canada, Ontario area, brought them to Lower Canada, and there was a couple skirmishes. Um, the Cochrane, who actually fought with Wellington, helped to defeat Napoleon, was leading the British soldiers against ragtag militia who were fighting for the Le Patriots. And the first battle, the British couldn't believe how feisty and how much resistance. And they, about 12 Patriots died and 13 British died. And at first, the Patriots were excited that they had just stood up to the most powerful empire in the world, but then reality set in and it's just, do you realize what we've just done? We've basically, if we don't win this now, we've basically just signed our death warrants. And in one of the priests in the Catholic area 
was trying to downplay this revolution. He said, have you really stopped and considered what civil war will bring? Have you thought about really all the lives that are going to be lost and how revolutions just basically end up being a bloodletting? So that was put down. Now, down here in Upper Canada, William Lyon Mackenzie noticed that all the soldiers had left, so he rounded up really great orators, pamphlets, rounded up people to meet at a tavern. He assembled about 800 men. He said, let's go take Toronto. It was originally called York. Let's go conquer Toronto. So he had 800 men. He said, there's no British soldiers around there. He got to Toronto and he was met by 20 militiamen, which are just volunteers who take up a sword. They aren't trained soldiers, uh, a gun in this instance. So we've got 800 of William Lyon Mackenzie's men marching on Toronto and 20 militiamen. The William Lyon Mackenzie's men, they shoot, and then as soon as they shoot their bullets, rather than stepping out of the way to let the men behind them shoot, they fall flat on their faces to duck. So the first few lines did this, and the people back here watching were getting slaughtered up there. <laughs> And they all turned and ran, leaving William Lyon Mackenzie screaming at them to come back. And he wrote saying, we probably could have taken without a single man being lost. Because they retreated that night, more loyal militiamen came and were able to put down the uprising. So both William Lyon Mackenzie and Joseph Papineau fled to the States. Canada just wasn't really ready for the idea of revolution by bloodshed. They were much more happy to work with under the system that, of government that was in place. But they still had this problem of no elected representation. Another commission came and said, what we have to do here is, the French are, again, causing all the problems. We need to unite the two Canadas, and that way, the French will eventually be kind of drowned out as the English body grows. So in 1841, they united the two Canadas. Thankfully, they renamed them Canada East and Canada West, which was much more geographically easy to visualize. <laughs> and, but the United Canada, the French and English, even though the French outnumbered the English, they received equal numbers of parliament in parliament their parliament but england still didn't really listen to the legislative uh, didn't the concerns of the elected body elections during this time were were dangerous because there would be thugs there was no such thing as a silent or a secret ballot you voted and they knew what you voted and so there was a lot of room for intimidation and corruption but in a few years later England realized they really needed to listen to the elected assembly. So they gave this elected assembly some real power. And one of the first decisions that the elected assembly said was that the people who lost their homes in the uprising, because after the British soldiers put down the uprising, victorious soldiers like to go destroy property, which they did, they said, these people who lost their homes should receive compensation. Uh, the French were in favor of this, 
But the English merchant said, why should my tax dollar be going to reward someone who was rebellious? But because it was overwhelmingly voted, the governor had a choice. Do you list, does he listen to this new elected assembly for the first time that they actually have a voice? Or does he put it down and make the English, the vocal group, happy? He decided to let the English minority, or the French minority, have their say. This made people so angry that they burned down Parliament, which was in Montreal by this time. So that was Canada's brief foyer into revolutionary ferment, and it just too many people were loyal. Now the Civil War happened in the States in 1860, and we're going to get into the Civil War in great detail in tomorrow's morning second session. But for now, all you need to know is that the Civil War made England, I mean, yeah, in Canada, very nervous because now there is a standing army and that when the war ended, the standing army, it would be very easy to just march in and take Canada. In fact, there was a editorial in the New York Times saying how great it would be for, and how easy it would be to just probably take 150,000 men in a three weeks march and they would be able to t get all the lands of Canada for the United States. One of the first mistakes in the Civil War was there was some Confederate soldiers going to Britain to work out a deal with Britain, trying to get Britain to side with the South because the South was producing cotton, England was very dependent on the cottons in the South's cotton. But Union Army captured these two rebels that were supposedly protected by Britain and Britain got very angry and so they threatened war and Britain actually set soldiers to live in Canada to try to protect in the case of a US invasion. But while the Civil War was raging, the idea that we should start, we should form confederation grew in purpose. And one of the biggest reasons was if we're, if all of us provinces are in confederation, there'll be a larger body to tax, we'll have more money for defense, will be harder to tackle than getting picked off colony by colony. They also thought if we form a confederation, we will have greater resources for uh, a railroad that would link all of this. And they also realized that if we were in confederation, then the English might slowly start outnumbering the French Roman Catholics. The Maritime wanted confederation, and they met in 1864, and someone suggested, well, why don't we invite United Canada to join these confederation talks? So they met in 1864 in Prince Edward Island in Charlottetown. When they got there, the streets were empty because there was also a circus going on at the time. The representatives from the United Canada greatly dominated the discussion of what was going on and really tried to sell confederation. Uh, Newfoundland and Prince Edward Island quickly realized that they didn't want anything to do with confederation. They were happy with just being an independent colony. They thought a confederation would just be a, another government to oppress them and tax them. 
But these confederation talks moved to Quebec and started in September. No, the, the confederation talks in Charlottetown were September. This was October. They went on for three weeks. John McDonald, John A. McDonald, was a very clever guy, witty, very likable, but an alcoholic. <laughs> and he would actually be absent from Parliament for an illness, but everybody knew that it was just uh, alcoholic <laughs> binging drink. An example of the type of leaders we had at the time. A woman by the name of Amelia Harris wrote in her journal about this public dinner that was given that included John McDonald and other Canadian dignitaries. She wrote at how these men got drunk and started beating each other's hats off and tearing off each other's coats and doing many other such equally clever things. <laughs> and she said, what a shame it is that these are Canada's leaders. But for, aside from being an alcoholic, he was a brilliant man, very persuasive, and he understood constitutional law. So they were debating this constitution, and whenever things got tense, someone will said, well, look, the Americans do it this way, let's do it another way. And people would go, yes, I can agree on that. <laughs> John MacDonald didn't like the fact that United States allowed the president to be a despot for four years. He liked the idea that if the head of the country wasn't doing his job, you didn't have to wait till the end of his term to remove him. So that was, they adopted in Britain, I mean, now we have our no confidence vote, which just, if there's a, a budget or a, a bill that doesn't get passed, it can actually, if it's a minority government, it can bring down the government. So we were never really stuck with a, you know, an Obama or something like that for <laughs> four years. <laughs> so during this meeting they had, some more turmoil came as the war was winding down. This was 1864, but it's still going. A couple soldiers from Vermont, Confederate soldiers, raided a U.S. bank and brought the money into Canada. The United States government demanded that Canadians release these, send these men back, or we'll come and invade your country if you don't release these men. But a judge in Montreal ruled that it's not my jurisdiction. But the, the Americans were, were really angry, and it just, again, made them realize how serious this threat of an American invasion was. In fact, Darcy McGee, who was Irish, and actually once signed his name, proud traitor to the British government, was pushing for confederation. He said, let's just look at the history of the United States. They wanted Florida, they marched in and took it. They wanted Texas, they marched in and took it. They wanted California and New Mexico, so they started a war and they got it. If they want us, it's, we're going to be pretty easy pickings. This is modern uh, translation of what he said. But they basically agreed on what their constitution would be in this meeting. But now they had the problem of selling it to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, trying to get them to agree on this. Nova Scotia was very adamant that they did not want to join Confederation. In fact, 
once they did join, 18 of the first 19 representatives of the country were separatists, just to give you an idea of how much Nova Scotia did not like this idea. But in 1866, after the Civil War, a group of Irish nationalists called the Fenians wanted to get back at England by attacking English property. Irish soldiers who had fought in the Civil War joined these Irish nationalists, the Fenians, and they actually started attacking Canadian farms and towns along the way. And the fear of the Fenians encouraged them, we really should get some kind of confederation deal going. <laughs> so John MacDonald and George Cartier, who was kind of his counterpart, he was French, he was, John MacDonald would try to sway over the English vote in United Canada, and George Etienne Cartier would try to win over the French vote, and they formed a team. Cartier liked to write his songs and would force people to listen to them at parties. <laughs> but he and a couple other re representatives went to London in around March and tried to get this bill passed through the British Parliament. While he was there, John MacDonald, his wife had died shortly earlier, he started pursuing a woman, ended up getting married there while he was waiting. He also woke up one night and found that himself and his bed was on fire. Uh, minor detail, he survived. <laughs> but in, I think, March, the British North America Act was passed. Many people in the British Parliament were happy to get rid of, the, the colony was becoming more expensive than it was bringing in money, and apparently they were more concerned about this new dog tax that was being debated in Congress. So, but on July 1st, oh, by the way, during these meetings, the discussion, the, the topic came up, well, what should, we, what should we name this confederation? And the premier of New Brunswick, Samuel Tilley, had just read in his Bible, Psalm, in Psalm 72 that morning, says, he shall have dominion from sea to sea. And he mentioned that, and he said, why don't we call it the Dominion of Canada? That is so cool that the Dominion of Canada is related to that verse, and he shall have dominion from sea to sea. And at different times, this has become a very precious verse to our churches, that that was their desire, this vision, that there would be a revival from sea to sea, and this would be his dominion, not just our dominion. But in Halifax on July 1st, The paper said, died last night at midnight, the free and enlightened province of Nova Scotia. <laughs> but there was great celebration. United Canada was divided up into Ontario and Quebec and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Those were our first four provinces in Confederation. Newfoundland and PEI were still sitting on the side. Queen Victoria had suggested that the capital of United Canada be put in Ottawa, which used to be called Bytown. And so in 1857, Ottawa became the capital of United, the province of United Canada, and then continued to be the capital of the Confederation of Canada. The Hudson Bay Company had way back in the 1600s, 
acquired the rights to everything that drains into what is now the Hudson Bay. That includes most of Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Northwest Territories, and none of it. Just a huge parcel of land. Now in 1869, their charter was about to expire. The United States wanted to buy it. The, William Seward had just bought Alaska for $7.2 million. And William Seward said that eventually he had a firm conviction that all of North America would belong to the United States. So the United States was willing to pay top dollar for Rupert's land, but the British government wouldn't let them. So this new young confederation and John MacDonald borrowed money from England and bought it for $1.5 million, Rupert's land. Now, in, um, if you look at the map, just on the other side of the Great Lakes, in the Winnipeg area. This was where the Métis, all the, the tra fur traders who came who didn't bring their wives, women with them, married Indian women, Native American women, and they became the Métis and they were predominantly French Roman Catholic. Also down here in Winnipeg was a Scottish settlement. Lord Selkirk had scouted out the land at the beginning of the 1800s, just before the War of 1812. And there was real headbutting with the fur traders because the fur traders wanted the fur, they didn't want the land to be settled. Settlers meant the end of free animals. But these settlers survived, but anyway, the Red River Valley contained a group of Métis and Scottish settlers who were thriving. Uh, Louis Rael was the oldest of 11, intelligent, good looking. <laughs> Why is this sounding so familiar? <laughs> Delusional. <laughs> Thought he was a prophet. <laughs> anyway, he was going to school in Montreal. When the Métis, when Rupert's land was transferred to the Confederation of Canada, the Métis were not at all impressed. So they invited Louis Rael back home to help lead kind of an uprising. Uh, immediately after acquiring the land, John A. Macdonald sent land surveyors to start dividing up the land in the um, section way that the English do it as opposed to the French system of strips. So he was violating French property rights by resurveying it. And Louis Rael went right up to the surveyors and made them stop what they were doing. And because of that, he gained a reputation for being able to stand up to England. They had him lead a rebellion. They, acquired, they took Fort Gary, which is now Winnipeg, and they set up a provisional government until their Ottawa would hear their rights that they also wanted the protection of Roman Catholic rights. Uh, there was a man by the name of Thomas Scott who did not like the idea of the French setting up a government. And so he was captured. And while he was in jail, he threatened to kill Louis Rael if he ever got out. 
So because of this, Louis Riddell had Thomas Scott brought before a trial, and they decided he should be executed. So he was executed, but because this was just a provisional government that wasn't authorized by the government, it was basically just some viewed as thugs killing someone. So they sent troops to Fort Garry. It took 96 days to get from wherever they, they were stationed before all the way to Winnipeg. And when they got there, Louis Rael <laughs> left his breakfast, watched from the sidelines, and realized he had to flee. He fled to the States. He became a romantic hero in the eyes of the French, even though he ended up spending time in an insane asylum. He actually won two elections to the House of Commons, but because he wasn't allowed back in Canada, he wasn't able to serve his terms. <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, Ottawa listened, put out the, revi the revival, the rebellion, and Manitoba entered the Union in 1871 as our fifth province. Now, when we're in British Columbia, in 1858, in the Fraser Valley, their gold was discovered, and 20,000 miners, not like kids who are under 18, but like <laughs> hard-headed miners, went, came and it acquired colony status for as a British colony. They called it British Columbia. John MacDonald offered to British Columbia that if they joined Confederation, he would build them a railroad that would be one of the longest ever built, that would be started construction within two years and would be finished in 10 years. And he said, we will take all of your debt, we'll absorb it into it. So the British Columbia people said that's an amazing deal. And in 1871, they joined Confederation as our sixth province. Prince Edward Island was told that if they joined Confederation, each man would get a sub, uh, subsidy of $50, and that there would be a government-funded steamer that would go back and forth across the island. And so in 1873, Prince Edward Island became our seventh province. Newfoundland finally joined in 1949. Um, <coughs> so. I'm running out of time, but the West, you gotta look into this because it's, it's very fascinating. The Americans discovered that the Plains Indians had a real weakness for alcohol. The Plains Indians insisted that if it was good whiskey, it had to have a real kick. So the American whiskey traders developed their own whoop-up bug juice, it was called, and it contained distilled alcohol, cayenne pepper, sometimes it would contain turpentine or soap, uh, molasses, red ink, and it was brutal to the natives. They became addicted to it. Around this time, the Plains Indians, they lost their buffalo, which went from five to 10 million herds, just were decimated for being killed for sport. The American government actually ordered its soldiers to slaughter the buffalo as a way to weaken the natives during the 
American wars with the Indians that were, were quite strong between after the Civil War and the mid-1880s. So the, they lost the buffalo, they were addicted to whiskey, smallpox also wiped them out, and when the buffalo or the bison left, their whole way of life, and not just a romantic way of life, but their sustenance, their food, their clothing, their homes, that was all gone when the buffalo left. And they, they weren't farmers, they didn't know trades. I mean, I just don't know how, how things could have gone different, but it's a terribly tragic story that ends in the in 1880s. They were starving to death. They joined the Métis, who were also not happy. They had, Métis had moved to the Saskatchewan area by this time. They invited Louis Rayel, who was now teaching school in Montana. <laughs> Boy, that says a lot about where Montana history went after that. <laughs> I, I just, wow. <laughs> but Louis Rayel thought he was a prophet who everything he spoke was a direct word from God. He thought that the Roman, it wasn't the Vatican, I don't know if it was called the Vatican then, but it should be moved to Canada and that there needed to be a new pope. Um, he led an Indian uprising. They attacked the RCMP. The RCMP were sent out to try to stop the whiskey trade in 1873. And it's also a fascinating story. But they attacked the they attacked the police. They laid siege to Fort Battleford. They um, anyway. It, <laughs> let me back up a little bit. Remember how John McDonald had told British Columbia that if they joined the Union, he would promise them a railroad. Well, the next time the election came up, there were two railroad companies vying for the right. To build this railroad. There, in the early 1870s, there was a terrible depression that went all through North America. And John McDonald and his group was feeling very financially constrained. And an election was coming up, and they to win the election, they felt they need to buy votes, which was paid carriage rides where the people would get to sip whiskey on the way to the polls. And then they would vote favorably. But he asked one of these railroad companies for $350,000 with the understanding that after, if they won the election, they would get the, do the railroad. John McDonald won the election, and it turned out that on this board of railroad were several American backers. And when people heard that Americans were going to be winning this or writing, controlling the railroad, they got upset. And they said, we'll only give you the contract if you remove the American backers. The Americans, with the help of the liberals, went and dug up the proof of the scandal, and it was, became headlines all over the place that there was corruption in the brand new government. And John McDonald disappeared for several days. They thought he had committed suicide, but he had probably just gone drinking. He, came back to Congress, just stepped down and resigned. The Liberals took over, and they decided that they wanted to 
just do this railroad piecemeal, which was taking way too long. Britain, British Columbia threatened to secede, which brought John A. Macdonald back into power. And he, uh, he, they gave a whole new contract, very favorable terms to the railroad. They gave them, I think, something about 40 million acres and the right to build towns and that they would have a monopoly on this so that they could set the rates at whatever they want. One person thought this railroad would cost 45 million, another person, expert, said no, it's gonna cost more like $100 million, and both of those estimates were low. This was taking forever to build this railroad across, dealing with mosquitoes. They ended up bringing in 15,000 Chinese workers who were sober, worked hard, and worked for cheap, and they were paid a dollar a day, and they did one of the most, some of the most dangerous areas through the Rocky Mountains, which were very dangerous. They would get blown up or die in avalanches. Hundreds of them died on the process. But even with all of this, this railroad still wasn't getting completed. They were still asking Ottawa for more money. This Northwest Rebellion that Louis Rail was leading among the natives and the Métis, he figured out if he sent his troops via the part of the railroad that would be completed, it would show the country that this was a very valuable Thing. So he was able to get his troops all the way to the Saskatchewan area in six days, as opposed to the 96 that had taken, what are, we, what are we, 15 years earlier roughly? This is 1885 now. Put out the uprising. Louis Rell was, was captured. His lawyers tried to get him to plea, plead insanity, but he refused because he said he had a he had a world he had a vision for where he wanted to take this country after he got free and no one would believe him he thought if he declared insanity he was executed angering the french and he became a mythical hero to the french and it continued to drive another wedge between the french and the english and even in 1995, when the Reformation, when they voted for separation, 90% of the province voted, and only 51% voted to stay. So these events, the idea of successfully assimilating the French into the English culture has just has never worked out. It's been a recurring theme. It was a recurring theme in World War I during conscription, and there was draft riots. It was a recurring theme in the Boer War in 19, 1899 when they didn't want to go fight in the Englishman's battle. It was a recurring theme in World War II. Uh, it erupted in the 70s when there was the FLQ, which was the Front for the Liberation of Quebec, and they kidnapped a British diplomat and a member of parliament, and Pierre Trudeau declared martial law. And it just, it's just been a recurring theme that the French don't really want to be part of English Canada. So we, I am running out of time. They were able to populate the West by a massive advertising campaign in Europe, in the United States. Clifford Sifton wrote pamphlets telling them about all the wonderful things about Canada except the weather. <laughs> <laughs> that part was conveniently left out. There was some incredibly harsh winters in the early 80s with the first wave of immigration. Between 1885, which were really rough years up to that point financially with the depression and turmoil, there's just a, between that point and 1911, 
there was just an incredible boom. Immigration, the numbers of, of, of Canada, of the West, of the East, they just grew exponentially. Uh, these advertising campaigns were very successful. But the first people who tried to settle out here in the West had it incredibly difficult. Uh, in 1881, the buffalo had started to die, and some ranchers brought in a ton, uh, thousands of cows, and the first winter was great. So the second winter, they didn't put up feed. Well, they got meat, three, uh, a meter of snow, and when the summer came, there was thousands of dead cows just laying. They paid Indians 25 cents a pelt to try to skin them and before they rotted. People who came in Europe responding to these advertising came and they saw their sod houses and they saw their cold. The mosquitoes on the way, I mean, it, they were just, it was not like the advertising at all. But they somehow stuck it out, very hardy people. John McDonald died in 1891. He was followed in succession by four conservative prime ministers in the next five years. Uh, they're listed in the Canadian timeline. Wilfrid Laurier became prime minister in 1896, the Liberals, and he was is revered as one of the most popular, well-known prime ministers. He was commemorated on all kinds of plates and buttons and tins and just was very popular. He lost power in 1811 when he tried to sign a free trade agreement with the United States, and that led to the fall of his election, the fall of his prime ministership. And then Robert Borden became prime minister during World War I. So we made it, except for the fact that I didn't discover, talk about the War of 1812. Uh, you guys have a few extra minutes? <laughs> so, Europe's fighting. Britain has left the colonies in peace, but they're still needing more men and money to fight these Napoleonic Wars. So, the United States had sympathies with France and had sympathies with Britain. They declared that they'd be neutral. But when a ship would go to France, the British Navy would just capture this and impress the US sailors into the British Navy. And America said, this really has got to stop. They also said, they also suspected that Britain was arming the natives and attacking forts. So they said, they declared war on Britain in 1812 under these terms that they've got to stop just kidnapping our men to serve in your military and you've got to stop arming the Indians. A group of US generals and British generals were having dinner when the news reached that the United States had just declared war on Britain. So they decided to finish their meal and went home and decided how they were going to go destroy each other. The first war was at Fort Detroit, where General Brock of Britain joined up with Tecumseh, who had united the native tribes to fight with him. Tecumseh's brother was a one-eyed prophet 
who utilized his knowledge of an upcoming eclipse to trick the Indians into thinking he ruled the heavens. And he encouraged them to have a spiritual revival and to fight. Tecumseh, they came, Tecumseh and Brock came for Fort Detroit, and they had, Tecumseh had 600 men, which he ran around the building three times, so it looked like he had 1,800 men. Brock wrote a message to Captain Hull, who was manning Fort Detroit, and he said, I just should let you know that should we win this battle, I won't be able to control these Indians. Indians did not subscribe to the gentleman warfare that was going on in Britain. They liked to take clothes off and put arrows in uncomfortable places. So it was not an inviting prospect for Hull. So he duped, he fell for it, just surrendered Fort Detroit with hardly any bloodshed, and they captured 2,000 Americans at Fort Detroit. That started the war. And Lundy's... <laughs> Jefferson was appalled. I mean, he was this, he, things didn't go very well for Captain Hull after that. And, and the war went on for a couple of years. In 2000, one of the, the bloodiest wars was in 2014 at a cemetery called Lundy's Lane. It was a dark, foggy night, and the British and the Americans went at each other, and they hardly, it was so dark, they didn't know who they were killing. In the morning, there was 2,000 people dead there. In 1814. <laughs> Good catch. <laughs> Just keeping you on your toes. <laughs> now, 1814. The war ended in 1814 in December in Britain by signing the Treaty of Ghent. But because communication was so slow, it took three months for the news to reach the United States. And after the war ended, Andrew Jackson won great military acclaim by one of the, the Americans' best victory in the war, Battle of New Orleans, in which he rode into the White House. So that is a very quick overview of Canadian history. I'm going to end with a quick quiz. What's the ratio of guy to girls here? Not enough guys? Seven to three. Seven to three? Okay, well, I won't embarrass you guys then with guys versus girls. <laughs> Name one reason for the War of 1812. This is why I had to tack it on at the end. <laughs> Yeah, he was contributing. Um, because the British were capturing American sailors and forcing them into the Very good. Name two reasons for Confederation. Two reasons that were a driving force. The state wanting to invade Canada. Yeah. And the petty reasons. Yeah, that, that played a, another role, yeah. Other reasons were, uh, well, defense was the big one. Uh, uh, funds for a railroad, uh, to also try to break up the deadlock between the French and the English. Uh, what were the first four provinces? So on July 1st, 1867, what were the four provinces? Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia. Very good. 
What was the reason Louis Rael was expelled from Canada? He uh, executed a... Thomas Scott, very good. <laughs> what was the sixth province? Little help, Manitoba was the fifth province. Very good. Okay, so the next session is tomorrow morning and be starts at 9.30, right? So, probably try Yeah, and there could be a good old Canadian blizzard tonight, so give yourself a little extra travel time. Probably shouldn't be too bad, but. So I will close in prayer and then we'll have some fellowship. Father in heaven, I do thank you for this story you are telling in this nation, and I thank you, Lord, that you have chosen the majority of us anyway to live in Canada and I just pray that we would continue to seek you as to the best way to serve our country and I just really pray too for the rest of this weekend Lord give give me a clarity of mind and just real anointing from your spirit to speak the truths that you want me to so that the the hearts and minds of the young people here Lord would really be able to discern between the trivial and the things that should be truly life-changing in Jesus name Amen